good day here in the Lord's house. I encourage you to take your Bibles, open if you would, the book of Amos. It's good that we sang just now about the love of God. Be reminded of just how big God's love is. We serve a great God who is loving. Perhaps the greatest attribute of God mentioned all through the Scripture is His love. He is a God of love and a God of mercy. We will spend forever in heaven uh, going over just and marveling at just how great God's love is. That He actually loved me. And that He loved you. I don't think we'll ever get over that. It'll only cause us to be more in amazement as the eons go by. And that's good to hear because we're coming to the book of Amos. And it's not exactly a popular piece of material for folks to be studying these days. It's not exactly popular preaching, not exactly popular reading. Probably wasn't on uh, most of your Bible reading plans or Bible reading schedules uh, this year, at least so far. Amos is one of the minor prophets, one of those little books sandwiched in between Daniel and the New Testament with the, the funny little names. And, and uh, it's just, as we said when we started this, most of this is flyover country for most Christians. You know, we just, and just kind of hop over the, the, the prophets, the minor prophets especially, because there's several reasons for it. One reason is it's difficult subject matter. You go and you read through the prophets, and as we've already found here in, in Amos, primarily, it's all about judgment. God's impending judgment upon Israel and, and Judah. And that doesn't make exactly for uplifting and feel good, warm, fuzzy reading. Also, it's about, it's, they're full of names of people and places, history of which we know very little. And so it's often difficult for us to wade through and, and understand the book. But we've been discovering as we go through that these are very relevant, relevant books. We've been looking at just three of the minor prophets. Uh, we chose the ones that were to, that wrote and spoke to the northern kingdom of Israel, and there's only three here, uh, in the, in the scriptures. We looked at Jonah. Today we're here in Amos, and we're going to be in chapters eight and nine. We finish our study of Amos today. And next week, we're going to be blessed looking at uh, the book of Hosea next Sunday. Last week here in Amos chapter 7, we saw three visions that God had given to, to Amos. And the last one of those visions was a vision of a plumb line. God was holding up a plumb line, a, a builder's tool, uh, up next to, the, as it were, the wall of Israel. To see if, if Israel was leaning or was bowed, if, the, if it was structurally sound or if it was ready to come down. Does, the, does Israel line up with God's Word or is Israel hopelessly flawed? And you recall that God said that judgment upon Israel was certain and sure. He said He would bypass or pass them by no longer. In other words, He won't go around them anymore. He won't overlook or excuse their sin. They've gone too far, and now judgment must fall. Today in chapters 8 and 9, He continues in this theme and, and talking more about this judgment that's going to come. And, and there's some important truth about this judgment that God is sending upon Israel. And I think we'll find it's still relevant to us today. There's two more visions in these last two chapters that God gives 
Amos. The first vision is this. It's a basket of summer fruit. Look in verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will never pass by them again. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declared the Lord God. God says again that there's judgment coming. But He adds to this, and He's letting them know with this vision of the fruit that the judgment is coming soon. See, the emphasis is it's a basket of summer fruit. Summer fruit, the last fruit of the season. And it's fruit that is overripe. If you've ever had overripe fruit or fruit that's approaching overripeness, you know it's, you know that you've got a few days left and you better eat it or otherwise it's, eh, nobody wants to eat it anymore. And it becomes that banana or that, uh, or that apple or whatever that just sits there until somebody uh, gets the nerve to pick it up and throw it out. And that's where Israel is. It's approaching the point where God is saying, I have to act. Judgment is coming, and it's going to come soon. And the reality is, from a historical point of view, from the time Amos writes this, from the time he declares this, it's about 20 years uh, or so until the northern kingdom is no more. The Assyrians come in and wipe out this northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., But God goes on and Amos goes on as this vision continues or as the explanation of the vision continues and God gives and rehearses the four four reasons why this judgment is coming. The big point is this, this people of Israel, they are people who are living for selfish gain, for to fulfill their selfish desires, their lust for more comfort. Their lust for more wealth, their lust for more pleasure has so consumed them that they do four things. He says, first of all, in verse 4, Hear this, you who trample the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. They're so desirous of things, so desirous of comfort, so desirous of pleasure that they are devoid of compassion. And so when there are those in need, they really are oblivious. They are apathetic. They don't care. When there are those who are poor, they are willing to allow the poor to be oppressed and to be basically run out of town. The guy, the poor farmer is struggling to... to uh, to make ends meet, and so the banker buys, you know, does him a favor and buys his land from him, and then gives him a job working on his land at reduced wages. And then the farmer has to give the landowner now all of the crop, and then the the landowner now sells the crop back to the guy who's working on what used to be his land, and he has to buy it at inflated prices. And that's the type of thing that goes on when people are consumed with stuff and with themselves. They lose compassion. 
Not only that, verse 5 continues that these, verse 5 it says, these folks are saying, when, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? He's saying the folks are sitting there in the, uh, on the religious holidays, the new moon, so they're there on Passover, or we might think on Easter or Christmas. And they're there every Sabbath. For us, we would think every Sunday. And all they can think about while they are there, all they can think about during the service, all they can think about on the, on what should be a holy day, all they can think of is when will this service be over? When will this day be over so we can get back to life? When will this holiday be over so we can get back to making a profit so I can afford the new TV or the new car that I want? When will this service be over so that we can get to the mall? And buy the things that we desire. They have put their own selfish gain, their own selfish desires over worship. He goes on and he says of these folks, he says that that they go, they're saying that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. So not only do they want to get back to their commerce, but they want to get back to their commerce so that they can they can kind of squeeze every little drop out of it and, and actually push the envelope so that we, we take the, the measures and we kind of cheat a little. So that when we're loading the scale up with with grain that this person is going to buy, we kind of push down on the, the scale so it looks like they're getting more than they are. And when we're weighing over here the the amount that they're paying, then we kind of, you know, lift it up a little bit so that they have to put more in. Whichever way we're transacting, we're, we're fudging with honesty and integrity. And we have put our gain, our desires, our comfort, our luxury, and we have compromised our integrity. Lastly, he says of these people, verse 6, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. Again, it's putting our luxury and our comfort and our gain, our profit over people. Yes, these folks may have need, but anything for a profit. No matter who gets hurt, no matter who suffers, What's important is that I get what I want. If there's saying selling the chaff for the wheat, the the the, the stuff that that fell on the floor and got mixed up with the stalks and the dirt and and stuff, and and yet we package it up and we sell it as as you know we wouldn't really give that to anybody that we cared about or anybody that we knew, but we'll sell it to the person who's desperate. We'll sell it to the person who's hurting. Because we've put profits and we put ourselves over people. That was the state of the people of Israel. The people who claimed to be the people of God. Please note, what this is saying is that when people, when a people lives like this, that they will come under the judgment of God. And when we look at these things and we think about these things, before we get too 
too excited about pointing fingers at Israel and saying, I can't believe that people who claim to be God's people would live like that and act like that. We've got to be careful because when we hold up the mirror, what we see is that often reflects our own heart and certainly the heart of our culture. Where we have put our luxury and our pleasure and our profit and our our desire for more and more and more and more. And we have put it ahead of compassion. We have put that ahead of worship and ahead of our integrity and over people. I almost said on all those things, gain Trump's compassion and gain Trump's worship, but I thought it might sound like a political statement. There's a frightening thing that is said at the end of that, verse 7. It says, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. It's frightening because what God has just said is, God has total recall. He remembers everything. Every little transgression, every little... You know, we count on the fact that people have bad memories. So that people don't remember what we did last week or last year that they'll forget and bygones will be bygones. And God says, I, I know it all. Every transgression. And God is going to hold nations accountable. He's going to hold people accountable. And He does not forget a thing. Because of these things, judgment is coming. It's coming soon and we've just seen why it's coming. And God has something else to say about this coming judgment He wants to tell us a little bit of what it looks like. We've seen some of that already in the book, but here God gives four pictures in this vision to Amos that help help him understand what, what it's going to be like when this judgment comes. The first picture you find in verse 8, we, we don't have time to read through all these, but he says, Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it rises like the Nile, and tossed about, and sink again like the Nile of Egypt, the Nile floods and rises and falls and and he's saying it's going to be like the Nile it rises and falls and everything gets tossed about what he's describing is an an earthquake there's going to be an earthquake in Israel secondly he goes on and he talks about darkness how that um, on that day he's going to make the sun go down at noon it's going to be dark verse 9 it's possibly perhaps an eclipse Maybe he's using figurative language to describe. We don't know. But the point is, when the people describe this day and this judgment, they will, use, they will talk about it as a day and a time of darkness. Verse 10, it says they will describe, and this day is pictured as a funeral. Not just a funeral where a few of us mourn the passing of someone who is close to us, but he says it's a funeral where every head there is Baldness on every head. There is mourning with every person. Everybody in the land is going to be mourning. And not just a mourning the loss of a person, but he says it's like mourning the loss of an only child, an only son. And in those days it was so critical for to have the son who is the heir to the family, all of the family stuff, and to pass on the family line and the family name. And when you lost an only son, it meant the end of a family. And his point is that there's going to be the end of a nation. And the people realize this when the judgment comes. They realize this is it. We are done as a nation. 
Lastly, he describes the fourth picture of this coming judgment in verses 11 through 13. It's the most interesting picture because he describes in verse 11 a famine. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. But notice this, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. The famine that's going to come is not food. The famine that's going to come is the Word of God. And so you might say, well, that's not such a big deal. Well, that just shows that you already are experiencing the famine. The famine of the Word of the Lord is a big deal. These people are people who have for over a century been telling God, we don't care what you think. You say worship in in Jerusalem, that's all right. We've got our own thing here. You say this, well, we've got our own plan. You say don't do this, well, we think that's okay. You say do this, well, we really don't want to. God, be quiet, as we saw not far back that they told the prophets, they shut up the prophets. Every influence God sent, they said, get away, we don't want to hear it. And God finally says, you tell me long enough that you don't want to hear. And eventually I say, okay, you won't be able to hear. And He takes it away. And you see, what happens is now the people are longing for the Word of the Lord, even though they probably don't recognize that they're longing for the Word of the Lord. And it may be that God is taking away access to His Word. He's removing the prophets. He's removing the Scriptures. There's no access to God's Word, but I rather think it's a little different. You'll notice what it says. It's a famine not of the Word, but it's a famine of hearing the Word of the Lord. What's removed is their ability to hear God's Word. In other words, it's kind of like the Febreze commercials. You know, the Febreze commercials, you go in and it says, you become nose blind to odors. And so you walk in your house and you go, you know, it smells fine. Somebody else walks in your house and goes, whoa. You get in your car, you think, you know, the car smells fine. They get in your car and go, whoa, can you put the windows down? You know, he's saying that's what happens. The Word of God is there, but we become blind with our eyes and deaf with our ears so that we no longer recognize, we no longer hear, we no longer desire God's Word, because we don't even know it's there, we don't care. And yet at the same time, the people are longing for what only God's Word can give. Hope, life, meaning, value, significance, purpose. And so people, he describes here when you go on down, they're wandering, they're going here, they're going there, they're looking for these things that only God's Word can give, but they keep coming up empty. And it's interesting, he says, the ones who, who most are affected by this, verse 13, in that day the lovely virgins and the young men, the young people, the young people are hungering for truth. They wonder, what is the purpose in life? What is the meaning in life? What is significant? What is valuable? Where do I come from? Where am I going? Where do I find light in a dark world? Where do I find life in a world of death? And the only place we find that is the Word of God. And He says, this land, they can't hear it. It won't be there. They won't be hearing. They won't be seeing. What a tragic thing. And yet I think I see it even happening in our own land. 
in our own time. There's a second vision that Amos sees. We see it in chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. This, He sees God. In the other visions, He has seen either events or He's seen things. In this case, He has actually seen just God Himself standing by the altar, the altar in the temple in Samaria. And it's the Lord standing beside the altar. And it is the Lord who in this chapter judges. He wants us to know that God is not distant. God is not uninvolved. God is simply not watching as things unfold. But it is God Himself who brings judgment on the nation of Israel. Four things that I see in these next verses. As God judges, it says in verse 1, it says, The Lord stands beside the altar and He said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. You say, what's the capitals? The capitals isn't the the building down in Jeff City or or the the capital building. The capital is the top of the supporting columns in the temple. If you went in the temple there, and remember God is standing there at the temple in Samaria, and He says, strike the the top of the capitals, the, the top of the pillars, the supporting things. In other words, knock the structure down. When you hit those, the whole thing comes crashing down. And it comes crashing down upon all of those who are worshiping there. This is God's judgment on these folks who are incredibly religious, they are very faithful in, in religiously going all, every week and periodically even more than once a week. And they're going and they're bringing sacrifices and offering praises, but they're not worshiping God. They're going through all the religious ritual, but they have no heart for God. And in fact, are worshiping other gods, gods of pleasure and gods of materialism and gods of other gods. And so God says there is no religious exemption. Being very religious here won't get you off the hook because they had no heart for Him. He continues in verse 1, at the end of verse 1, and he says, those who didn't die at the temple, those who are left of them, I will kill them with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of these shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. It's a frightening picture because not only is judgment coming, but God is hunting the people down. There is no running, no escape. I remember in college singing in a quartet, and one of the songs we sang was, No hiding place down here. There's no hiding place down there. There's no hiding place down there. Run to the rocks to hide my face. And the rocks cry out, No hiding place. There's no hiding place down there. I always thought it was kind of a strange song. It comes out of Scripture. It's an interesting contrast because some of the most comforting passages of Scripture are ones like Psalm 139. Where can I flee from your presence? He's saying, wherever I go, you are there and I'm safe. Romans chapter 8. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Absolutely nothing. Neither height nor depth. And he goes on and on. Nothing can separate us. No matter where we go, no matter who tries, no one can separate us from God's love because God is always with us. God is everywhere. The omnipresent God, the omniscient God, 
is always with us and always aware of us. And while that is great comfort in Scripture, if God is out to destroy you, that's a big problem. There's no running. There is no escape. And that the next thing I see here, and it's really what I just said, in verse the end of verse 4, God says, I will fix my eyes upon them for evil, not for good. God says, I am your enemy. I've set myself against you. Verse 5, God goes on, The Lord of hosts, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn. Amos makes sure he's pointing out that it's the sovereign God, the God who is the, the Lord of hosts, the, Lords of heaven, the Lord of heaven's armies. He is the sovereign, all-powerful God who touches the earth and it melts. He is the God who has spoken everything into existence simply by a word. And He is the God who can just as easily bring judgment upon it with just a word. He's saying when you've got God as your enemy and He is sovereign, you've got a problem. There is no recourse. There is no way out. There's no exemptions. There's no escape. And there's no one to rescue you because God Himself is against you. And you can almost hear the people object. And they might say, but, but, but we're your people. We saw that objection earlier in Amos and God answered it, but He answers this again. Verse 7, look at what He says. God says, are you not like the Cushites to me, declares the Lord? O people of Israel, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? And that's what they would say. Yeah, didn't you bring us out of Egypt? Therefore, you love us, God. We're special. And God says, well, and the Philistines from Kaptor and the Syrians from here. God would say, yes, I did get you guys out of Egypt. That's true. I also brought the Philistines up and I brought the, and I brought the other folks. You know, I've been involved in the, the history and the lives and the stories of every people on the planet. Did God have a special relationship with, with Israel? Yes. But His point to them is, if you act like the pagans, if you live like the pagans long enough, I'll treat you like them. We've seen already and we've said all along in this book that a big problem with Israel here is that they took a special relationship with God when God called them out and adopted them as His people that they took a position that God was giving them of responsibility and turned it into a position of privilege. Where, hey, we're God's special people and we get special treatment no matter what. And God just is going to love us and, and deal with us really specially because we're special. And God says, that doesn't exempt you from judgment as we saw a couple of weeks ago. It guarantees it. Because God will not tolerate spoiled children. There's no recourse. God will not rescue you because you're His children. He will judge you. I think much of God's historical blessing on the United States has been because of the church investing in our responsibility of our mission as God's people. By and large, the Christians of this land have been 
invested in the mission God has given us to do. From the mid-19th century to throughout the 20th century, Christendom's efforts to take the gospel to the world has been primarily carried out through the Western world and especially the United States. If you've noticed in the past few decades, the American church has preached less and less about our mission. The American church has given less and less. The American church has prayed less and less. And the American church has gone less and less in the endeavor and the cause of carrying the gospel to a lost world. All the while and at the very same time, we as the church have become more and more like our culture in our values and in our morals. And all the time we live like privileged people who think we deserve God's blessing. I think that these are some powerful words as God speaks to a nation just like us a few thousand years ago. There's not only no recourse, but there's no rescue. God says in verse 8, God says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. God says, don't expect rescue. I will do this. God goes on down in verse 10 and He says, all of the sinners of My people shall die by the sword. Those who say disaster shall not overtake us or meet us. Those who say, no, it won't happen. God won't really judge us. I mean, we're too special. We're too awesome. We're too religious. God won't judge us. And God says there's no, there's no rescue. I will utterly destroy this sinful and this smug kingdom of Israel and the judgment will be complete. Every one of the sinners, he says, will die. If the book ended there, it would be rather depressing, a real downer. But we would understand several things that are absolutely true. God is a holy God who takes sin seriously. God holds nations accountable and people accountable and God punishes evil. Even among His own people, and I might say especially among His own people. Those who claim His name. These are words we need to hear and we need to read in 21st century America. And far too often we fly over this stuff. And we say, it's not relevant. Rather, we just like to hear words of encouragement and let's feel good. But the book doesn't end there and there is some good news. You might have several questions and I'm just going to answer two. I'm going to tell you what some questions are. You might have other questions. This book does raise lots of questions. But two questions that that nag at me as I if I just stopped here, if there wasn't anything else, there would be two questions that would nag at me. One of them is this. What about those perhaps few but righteous and godly people that might be in the northern kingdom of Israel? You might recall a story about a hundred years before this. There was the prophet Elijah. Elijah had that big showdown with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. 
and the wicked king Ahab was on the throne and, and they had the big showdown and when it was done and God was shown to be God and the prophets of Baal, their, their God was shown to be nothing and, and it's all over. But, but Elijah in a moment of depression is on his knees before God and he's crying and he says, God, I'm the only one left. Do you remember that story? And what was God's response? No, you're not. There are thousands who have not bowed their knees to Baal. It's a hundred years later, and I just can't help but imagine that there are still some good and godly folks in this northern kingdom who haven't bowed their knees to Baal. What happens to them when this devastation falls on the land? It's a good question. Another question that might that might come up if you think about this so far, you listen to all this, this judgment as you might think, well, wait a minute. God made covenant promises with the people of Israel. What about His promises to the whole house of Israel? God's chosen people. The answer to those is between the last verses that I read. I read verse 8 and I read verse 10, but let's read what's in the middle. Beginning of the last, well, I'm going to start with the beginning of verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will utterly destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. That goes back to what about God's promises to Israel, the house of Jacob? I will not utterly destroy it for the sake of His promises and His word. We're going to come back to that. The other one, let's keep going. For I will command and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. The Lord God offers and promises protection. He says, I'm going to shake this place and it's going to be shaken up and it's going to be, yes, it's going to be turmoil. There's going to be judgment, but it's going to work like a sieve. He's describing a big strainer, a sieve that people use to strain and to sift wheat and grain. What's significant is God says that this judgment isn't all about destruction. This judgment is about purifying. This judgment is about separating those who are faithless and those who are faithful. And God makes a promise in the midst of all that. He says, not one pebble, not the smallest little kernel will fall to the ground and get lost. I love the way that the great preacher C.H. Spurgeon described this. He said, and yet for all this, not the smallest, lightest, or most shriveled grain is permitted to fall to the ground. Every individual believer is precious in the sight of the Lord. A shepherd would not lose a single sheep. A jeweler would not lose one diamond. A mother would not lose one child. Nor a man one limb from his body nor will the Lord lose one of His redeemed ones. However little we may be, if we are the Lord's, we may rejoice that we are preserved in Jesus Christ. God is doing the sifting and He's doing it very carefully. And He will never lose one of His. That's why today many of our brothers and sisters endure suffering they endure persecution and they do it with bold boldness, with courage and with joy because they know that God cares for His own. Always. 
And while He may not deliver us from the storm, He will deliver us through the storm. While not one guilty person goes free, not one of God's own gets lost. So encouragement to you guys. You may be the only believer, the only faithful believer in your family. You may be the only faithful believer in your school. You may be the only faithful believer in your block. You may be the only faithful believer in your workplace. You may be the only faithful believer in your city. But do not lose heart. Do not lose courage. Stand firm. Because God never loses any of His own. I do think, by the way, in heaven when we get there, we're going to hear some fascinating stories from some of these people who lived in this time who were faithful believers. And we'll hear stories of how God delivered them either from or through these dark days that were coming. Lastly, this question of what about the promises to the whole house of Israel and the answer we find in 11 through 15, and that's this, God restores. I can't really read the whole thing. Let's just get a little touch of it. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen to repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old Behold, the days are coming, verse 15, where the, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seeds. Verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities. Verse 15, I will plant them in their land. They will never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given to them. God has a plan to restore Israel and ultimately this promise will find its fulfillment when Jesus returns and sets up His kingdom on earth but guaranteed it will be fulfilled because God always, always, always keeps His promises. One just particularly interesting thing out of this that I I wish I had time to dig into more, but these promises are all about Israel, and yet you're included and I'm included. Interesting, when you go to the book of Acts, And I just write it down, the reference, go look it up later. Acts chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. The leaders of this early fledgling church have gathered together in chapter 9 and they're trying to figure out what to do about Gentiles. Can Gentiles really be saved? (laughs) And if they can be, what are we supposed to do with them? And and James gets up, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is now a believer and now a leader in the church, stands up and he quotes from this passage in Amos. And his point in quoting from Amos is this. It has always been God's plan to bring Gentiles to faith. It has always been God's plan to save some Gentiles. And that's where we come in. And that we as Gentiles are going to share in the blessings of Israel when Jesus sets up the kingdom. We're here. That's why this is all good news. So many things, three conclusions. Three things for us to learn from this. First is this. The Scripture calls us to live as holy people. Not to just be those who drift along with wherever our culture goes. That's what Israel did. We don't want to follow their example. We want to Do something different. What should we do? Let's live holy lives rather than just drifting with our culture. We're called to be holy. The second thing is you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, we're not only called to be holy, we're called in Scriptures to a mission. 
to go and make disciples. So let's not be like the Israelites who took our position and turned it into privilege. Let's be those who take our responsibility and let's carry the mission. Let's take the good news of Jesus to a lost world. Thirdly, as believers in Jesus Christ, you and I are citizens of heaven. That's why we pray, Thy kingdom come in the Lord's Prayer. Because we're citizens of that kingdom. So let's not cling so much to the stuff of earth. Let's not build our homes here because this really isn't where we belong. We tend to put down deep roots in earth where we should keep our roots here shallow because our real home is in the kingdom of Christ. Father, we needed this reminder so desperately. It's not stuff we want to hear. The stuff of judgment is is uh, the fact that You really do judge nations and peoples isn't something we want to hear, particularly when we look at Israel and we realize how very much our own nation, our own culture looks like Israel. We realize that judgment and difficult times may be very much around the corner. The sifting may start. Father, may we be folks who are in love with You. Because of that, we live holy lives. Because of that, we are committed to sharing the good news of Jesus. And because of that, we cling lightly to the stuff of earth. And we set our affection and we set our hope with Jesus and in His kingdom. And in His name we pray. Amen.